You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Who did win last night's game? I switched to watch Great British Bake Off because it was pudding week and holy don't, shit. Don't tell, I don't want any Bake Off spoilers. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here again with Jane Coaston and Dara Lind. Ezra continues to be in uh, parts unknown, but we wanted to talk. We know people come to Vox, and particularly to the Weeds, for the sports coverage. Finally. Vox Media, yeah. <laughs> once if, known as sports vlog, the Sports Vlog Nation Network. Sports, it's true. Sports Vlogs Inc. was the original ah, name of the company. Yes. NFL season is upon us. And one of the great innovations of Trump era politics is that football season is also takes season. Today, shortly before 7 a.m., the president, with scandal swirling around him, uh, Supreme Court justice nomination in the wind, uh, he said, what was Nike thinking? And he was referring to the fact that Nike has redone its deal with former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who to be noted, had a deal with Nike going back to 2011. But they have renegotiated that deal and made him one of the faces of its 30th anniversary of the Just Do It campaign. So let's let's really make yeah. sure we cover the basics. In yeah, case yeah, you yeah, don't happen to know. Colin Kaepernick, he was a quarterback. Yes. He played for the— San Francisco 49ers. For the 49ers. And then several he, years ago, yes. he began— Taking a knee during the national anthem that he, it, opens football games. So the actual, yes. the, like, the story here is Colin Kaepernick was a breakout star because he was playing surprisingly good and innovative football. Right. For because a surprisingly good and innovative team. And then, like, the season after his breakout year, he kind of got woke, so to speak. You know, he, it, ish. Like, he, he, right. he got hurt and got woke at around the same time. <laughs> and so— this begins, in a sense, this is August of 2016 that he begins his protest. At the time, he has been benched, and it's a complicated situation because, and that also leads to the lawsuit he's filed against the NFL. But anyway, it's he has been benched, and he is sitting during the anthem, and no one notices during the first preseason games. Like, NFL reporters take pictures of him on the bench, and only then are people like, oh, that's interesting. And then, he, you know, he starts getting more attention for it. He says that 
He is not going to stand up to show pride in the flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger in football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. And he's referring to the shootings of unarmed black men um, across the country. This would be August 2016, so this would be about a month after Philando Castile was murdered in Minneapolis and the continued stories of unarmed black men and unarmed black women being the victims of police brutality and then the police officers in those cases usually not being punished. And so he originally is sitting during the national anthem And then he begins kneeling during the national anthem because he has spoken with Nate Boyer, who is a former Green Beret and for a brief time, a NFL long snapper, who talked to him and was saying, obviously, I know that you don't want to appear disrespectful to military or to America in general. And so Nate Boyer tells him maybe kneeling would be better. Kneeling would be more obviously respectful. Except that's not apparently how some people have taken it to be. Right. So then subsequent things, right? Kaepernick, after the end of that season, he can't get a new contract. He has a lawsuit alleging that there's uh, illicit collusion against him from NFL owners. Uh, This claim seemed plausible to me. I don't know the... Exact legal nuances of what it is you need to prove to prove the case. But I would say in an ordinary language sense, it is striking that in a league with 32 teams and usually three quarterbacks on a roster, nobody is like, okay, let's take a flyer on this guy. And then Donald Trump, though, this is, I think, the most important part about it is that this could be just a thing that is happening in the background of culture. It has no obvious relationship to the federal government or, right. you know, national politics. But Scott Walker yesterday went on a multi-part tweet storm. In, about involving how, a bitmoji. About how his opponent's running mate once did a tweet that appeared to be supportive of these protests. The president has at rallies and yeah. Twitter many, many, many times he's talking about this. Clearly, like what, what Republicans are trying to say is that there's no law related to this that they are proposing. There's no executive action that Donald Trump is taking that he is proposing. But he would like you to think about whether you admire Colin Kaepernick's protest or whether you think it's a bad idea and to cast your vote to align yourself with Trump if you agree with him that Kaepernick is bad, even though there's no concrete stake in it. And it is, I think, an awkward situation for Democrats because this is like the true meaning of a wedge issue is that like when Mike Capuano, who recently lost his primary, made some not so supportive comments about these protests, that really, really hurt him a lot with his base, right? right? right. But when Beto O'Rourke running in Texas made some very supportive comments, I think that, you know, that hurts him. Like the polls and stuff are pretty clear that like the typical person, if they were to base their vote exclusively on what they think of NFL players kneeling at the national anthem is like not going to vote for the pro-kneeling side. And in some ways, that's implicit in the protest, right? Because like to Kaepernick's initial point doing this kneeling, if there was overwhelming popular belief in the United States that the way policing is conducted and that the way police officers are held accountable is outrageous, like 
the system that he's protesting would not exist, right? Like, it's like part of the nature of a protest movement, right? Is that like you are saying that this status quo that everybody accepts is in fact not acceptable. I'd also like to note very quickly, though, that when you're saying like if you're asking everyday people, we need to drill down a little bit because we need to say everyday white people because this is an issue. um, I think 538 has done some polling on this as of uh, YouGov and HuffPost that the majority of black people are like – we support Colin Kaepernick's protest. And the majority of white people say, we do not support Colin Kaepernick's protest. And it's an issue in which, like, there's a very clear demarcation here. But it's also also like America, frankly, is not a country that's 50% white and 50% black. Like, that's, as a political issue, like, this is why this is good for Donald Trump. Like, most people are white. White people do not care for this protest. And also there is no policy issue. It's not like sticking your neck out on a politically risky bill that if the bill passes, will help millions of people. So I want to be clear, because I am not convinced that, in general, it's a good idea to draw an arrow between the polling is against one party on this and, like, this issue is going to be bad for. Because usually people do not make their voting decisions based on a single issue. Like, the question of whether people are going to be going to the polls in 2018 and voting for Beto O'Rourke or Ted Cruz based on what Beto O'Rourke said about the national anthem, like, depends in large part about how and how much the media covers this compared to other things. And that's, you know, I, I do think that If you're listening to The Weeds, you probably saw multiple times in your Facebook stream over the last few weeks clips of this Beto O'Rourke response, so you've probably watched it. But in case you're like me and don't watch videos on Facebook and haven't, um, Beto's actual response was not the kind of supportive of, yes, like, you know, the status quo is unacceptable support that you were limiting just now, Matt. It was much more, you know, a defense of free speech. And some of us can agree, some of us can disagree. And like, it's extremely American to engage, you know, to use your freedom of speech this way. And it's also super American to strenuously disagree with it. Sure, like, right. it was a very, like, it was an attempt to, you know, show support for the idea that you should be able to protest without saying, yeah, you know, kill the pigs. Right. But, you know, of course, the way that that gets covered is Beto O'Rourke is in favor of protesting the flag. But, but I mean, here's what I, I'm not even saying that. Like, here's what I'm saying is, like, there's a lot of shit floating around in the ether on any given day, right? And the question is, like, obviously— There's no, like, one issue that everybody bases their votes on or anything like that, right? But, like, what Trump is doing, what Trump has been doing is he has been trying to inject this particular cultural controversy into partisan politics. He would like people to think of this question as an important defining topic in the 2018 midterm elections. And it's not just him, right? A Gillespie made a big deal about kneeling, as did a bunch of Virginia state legislative candidates. Like Scott Walker is running on this in right. Wisconsin. And it's striking because it's avoidable, right? Like there are some things – like you can't have an election in which the candidate is like, taxes, who cares, right? right. Like Because like that's one of the main things the government does. Like the government like really does not decide who Nike gives endorsement deals yeah. to. Politicians – choose to comment on things like that. And it's notable that, like, it's Republicans who are choosing to say the question of what ads Nike runs is a political 
subject, yeah, right? And, and, I, and yes, I, I think, although that doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. Like I remember about a year ago, we had a few podcasts about the Virginia governor race. Oh, saying, sure. It's notable that yes. Republicans think that talking about MS-13 is a political winner for them. And lo and behold, it turned out it was not. And yeah. it's the same thing with Confederate memorials. You'll notice this. I am our colleague Tara Golshan has written on this that, you know, Republicans thought like, yeah, we're going to be able to run on the tax bill. Right. And it turns out the tax bill is not as easy as an, a sell as Colin Kaepernick hates America and dogs and cats. Well, it depends what you do, right? I mean, because like, who knows what will happen? But it's like one thing that will plausibly occur in some of these races is that someone's going to say like, I'm out here talking about like your health care and your schools and like what's up with the roads and like here's my opponent and he's like tweeting about Nike ads. Right, and, right, like, exactly. Don't 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 be an asshole. That's what a bunch of down ballot candidates were talking about in Virginia who were you know saying like I really care about this particular terrible traffic turnabout. Why is my opponent getting really upset about how taking down Confederate memorials is the same thing as ISIS. But can we actually, yeah, let's, no, no, no. can we I talk about, to... can we talk about Nike? Yes. So like, what are they doing here? Because so their ad aired yesterday. Yep. Right. I just watched it. I mean, it's interesting because it's, I mean, it's like not an ad about police brutality no. or anything <laughs> like that. It's a kind of normal Nike ad, yeah. but it is narrated by a fellow who is at the center of a big political controversy. And, right. and, and furthermore, they like advertise that in advance. It wasn't like an Easter egg. Like, no. if you happen to recognize <laughs> right. the voice of Colin Kaepernick. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, A, like, part of it, right, is anytime you're doing marketing, part of the goal is to get attention. Right. And this mm-hmm. has gotten them a lot of attention. Oh, it's it's massive. You know, I think Darren Ravel, who's a sports media reporter of sorts, he talked about how even just tweeting about it, he had never seen the kind of like retweets and views or something just on a tweet about this campaign. And it's interesting because I think a lot of people were like, oh, you know, there's going to be boycotts and Nike's market share is going to go down. And they were trying to watch the stock market this week, which one, if you'll notice, Nike, Puma, Adidas, you know, and Under Armour, all of their stock went slightly down. And it has nothing to do with Colin Kaepernick. It has to do with NAFTA. And Nike's numbers are starting to go back up. And also, this is what Nike does. Nike has a long, you know, I wrote a piece about this. Nike has a long history of trying to advertise itself as being the clothing apparel maker for when you want to go against the man, which is ironic because Nike is the largest sports apparel company in the world. You know, it employs more than 40,000 people. It has had long-running issues with both sweatshops and gender discrimination issues, and it's the kind of place where, you know, they strong-arm the mayor of the town next to where its headquarters are so that the headquarters will not be annexed so it didn't have to pay taxes. Like, this is not, like, a tiny little company that's trying to, like, struggle against the oligarchs or something. It is the oligarch. But Nike's advertising strategy since the mid-80s has been reliant on this concept of, like, we're taking a stand for the underdog. And, you know, in 1987, they got the rights to use Revolution by the Beatles because they paid Yoko Ono for it to use it in an ad and then forced a bunch of entities to say, no, you're not allowed to ever do that again. You know, in 1993, they made an ad with then NBA star Charles Barkley saying, I am not a role model. Parents are role models. I get paid to wreak havoc on the basketball court. And that ad caused a huge amount of consternation. You know, people were like, why are basketball players rejecting the responsibilities given to them by our society? And like, it was a huge thing. 
And they've done this over and over and over again. Like Nike is very good at this. And I think part of something that's important is I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but, you know, there's this quote that Michael Jordan allegedly said about how, you know, Republicans buy shoes, too. I think this has actually been, it's worth saying, fairly conclusively investigated. He has never said this. Yes, that is true. It is important cultural focal point. It is an important (laughs) cultural focal point. But the issue is that Nike's strategy, as announced last year, is that they don't really care about whether or not Republicans buy shoes because they know who does. They focused their marketing strategy on 12 cities around the world. They include New York, London, Shanghai, Los Angeles, Tokyo, Paris, Berlin, Mexico City, and a couple of others. And you Not know, there's, Republicans in Berlin. It's true. And they're saying, you know, this is where 80% of our growth is going to be coming from through 2020. And of those cities, they want to go after a group of people that uh, – Forbes's Pamela Danziger called Henry's high earners, not rich yet. Right. So mm-hmm. they make more than $100,000, have professional jobs, live in big cities, and would have the money to spend more than $100 on a pair of sneakers. And if anyone has bought like Air Force Ones in the last five years, you know that Air Force Ones, uh, LeBrons, or something like that cost like between $130 and $160. And so they are guessing that, you know, the people in New York City, who have the money to buy a fresh pair of Air Force Ones, are also probably not the same people who would be willing to burn their aforementioned Air Force Ones because they were so upset about Colin Kaepernick being well, an ass. And it's, yeah, there, there's a ton that I want to get into here, and but one of the one of the things I think is really important to drill down on is. Usually when Nike shoes come up in the context of politics, it's because Republicans or, you know, anti-safety net, anti-welfare state conservatives are saying there is a cultural problem in black communities such that people are willing to spend their money on these super expensive shoes instead of on things that are more important like food and blah, 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 blah. Like it's really interesting to me that All of a sudden, the assumption is that Nike is making its money off white conservatives who are really mad about Colin Kaepernick, when in literally any other context, the assumption is that Nike is making its money off people who shouldn't be spending money on shoes. And the the actual data that Jane just mentioned demonstrates that there actually is a middle point between those two, that there are people who are rich enough to buy shoes without having to skip meals, but not so rich that they see themselves as the man. The Henry's of Tokyo. But but. I think there's an important point here, like beyond the specifics of Nike, because I think it explains a lot about American politics, right, which is that in politics, right, foreigners don't count, like at all. They don't get to vote. Non-citizens don't count because they don't get to vote. People who are under 18 don't count because they don't get to vote. Young people in general count less than old people. Right, because young people vote less than old people. Right, and people in rural areas count more right. than people in big cities because they're overrepresented in the electoral system. And in marketing, it's just the opposite of that. Right now, you can sell a shoe to an old guy living in rural Kansas if you want, and his money is as good as anyone else's. But particularly when you're talking about fashion, when you're talking about consumer brands, right, old people, their habits are formed. Right, mm-hmm. if you are in the market for sneakers and you're 73, you have probably bought sneakers before in your life, have a lot of settled opinions, are not really interested in chasing the latest trends. So it's not worth your while to spend a lot of time 
advertising to you, right? Advertising marketed at seniors is driven by senior-specific concerns. So if you right. haven't thought about it— anyone who's ever watched Jeopardy knows. Right. But, yes. so, but so it's like if you're trying to sell, whether it's sneakers or it's laundry detergent, whatever, you're trying to get young people. You're trying right. to get like 20-somethings, right? Right. And politics has shifted so that the audience for consumer marketing— is much, much more left-wing than the electorate. Exactly. And And this is particularly matters for for clothing fashion brands because people who live in big cities and African-Americans are seen as tastemakers, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas they're like incredibly underrepresented in the Senate, in the Electoral College, things like that. So like Colin Kaepernick can be cool without Colin Kaepernick being like a winning issue in a Montana Senate race. Right, exactly. I want to complicate the idea of left wing a little bit because, you know, as Jane, you were running through and talking about like the actual corporate character of Nike, there was a kind of dumb meme for about a hot minute this past week about like, LOL, now liberals are buying these corporate shoes to own the conservatives. But it's worth pointing out that for all the kind of overhyped identity politics liberals versus, you know, like socialist economic liberals fighting within the Democratic Party, there is a much larger consortium of people who are vaguely culturally liberal, who are young, who aren't necessarily tuned into day-to-day politics, who aren't necessarily going to engage in ethical consumerism. They're not going to be tracking the child labor practices of everywhere they buy their clothing, but they are going to vaguely align with brands that they think share their values. And that's not a like, oh, these dumb kids are buying against their self-interest. It's a fact that affective consumerism is a much broader pool of people than ethical consumerism per se. And so I think it's, it's less about left-wingness right. than about this kind of general, this is a big culture war. It is right. bigger than, you know, it's something that is both the biggest thing that Darren Ravel, an NFL primarily, yeah. you know, sports business reporter will tweet about, and the thing that Donald Trump thinks is going to really mobilize people. It is bigger than both sports and politics because it is both of these well, things. Well, you, right. you guys are young, right, though? Like, do you remember the 90s? Vaguely. Yeah, only a little bit. Because like we what, used what's to up t- with the nineties. This was like this was. Oh so yeah, you were you were like one of the WTO <laughs> protesters. This this but like this was so big in the nineties. I remember. I actually the only time I've ever been close to being arrested is because I participated in a sweatshop protest outside of a I believe a Nike store in suburban Ohio. Right. So, so it was very, very specifically this. Nike, right? So like Naomi Klein's book No Logo is. Like it's about more things than Nike, but like, but like, but like, Nike is the central character (laughs) in the book, right? Right. And so this kind of thing was for people on the which the whole political spectrum was very different in the nineties, and like left thinking was much more marginal than it is today. But like, this is exactly what they were warning us against. I I pulled up a 1994 essay by, by Thomas Frank called "Commodify Your Descent," which is like I think one of the the touchstone pieces of, of the 90s. And he talks about a uh, ad in which William S. Burroughs is doing a Nike script, right? And, and he writes, the most startling revelation to emerge from the Burroughs-Nike partnership is not that corporate America has overwhelmed its corporate foes or that Burroughs can somehow remain, quote unquote, subversive through it all, but the complete lack of dissonance between the two sides. Of course, Burroughs is not, quote unquote, subversive, but neither is he, quote unquote, sold out. His ravings are no longer appreciably different from the official folklore of American capitalism. And of course, the fun asterisk there is the idea that William S. Burroughs could be considered 
like left wing, given right. that I think in 2018 the focus would be much more on like his violence against women. Absolutely, right. <laughs> but I mean, but I think I think the point here, though, is good, which is that in the 60s, like a model emerged of a counterculture that was starkly in opposition to the man in the flannel suit. Right, who ran corporate America. And the modern day culture war is different. I mean, it's not just different in its content, but it aligns differently with economic politics, right? That if you're asking who in white America is particularly likely to be really mad about Colin Kaepernick, it's not more likely that that person is the CEO of a fashion brand than just like an electrician somewhere. Mm, You know what I mean? There is a power structure that is challenged by putting Colin Kaepernick in an ad, but it is not the economic structure of American life, right? And that in a lot of ways, you know, people – well, you saw in the 2016 campaign, like a lot of very wealthy and powerful white people were very happy to give a lot of money to a Hillary Clinton campaign that was strikingly willing to embrace some of these kinds of causes, right, relative to political campaigns that we've seen in the past. And those exact same people would be really leery of – Bernie Sanders or probably Elizabeth Warren and and some other things like that, right? That like there is a culture war that is like very real, that matters a lot to a lot of people, um, but that is one that the business class is relatively comfortable with the left side of. I think they're also – you've seen since Trump has become president, they're very comfortable with the right side of it also. Right. But like they don't care. Right. Right. And this is why, you know, I think it's been interesting and I've written on this a little bit because it actually had something to do with the Twitter and Facebook hearings that took place earlier this week is that there was kind of this long running idea that conservatism and big business were, I, I think that someone, you know, a conservative commentator referred to it as an unholy marriage. But we've seen a time and time again as Apple dealing with religious freedom restoration acts in Indiana and other states and other corporations taking stands that made sense for them from a business perspective, especially on issues having to do with, say, LGBT rights, something also that Nike every year does a like kind of pride edition for its shoes and activewear every June. And I think that there very much is a sense that left leaning arguable politics is something that for these companies, it one matches in some part how they feel, especially on cultural issues. I think that if, you know, if you wanted to have a big discussion about fiscal conservatism with like Tim Cook, I'm sure he, you know, he'd be like responsive. This is also someone who does not like high taxes. But on culture issues, I feel like it's a safe business idea. And it's also, it's interesting because I think The culture war issue is one of those things where I think that a lot of conservatives seem to think that Nike is doing this to be anti them, whereas Nike is doing this because it wants to be pro people who listen to Deezus and Mero, people who follow along with black Twitter as people make fun of people burning their shoes, which is hilarious, by the way, because the shoes don't seem to burn. Which says something for Nike's shoe durability. I could make a joke about factory conditions here, but I'm totally not going to. Please Um, don't. (laughs) But 
we should probably take a break. And then I want us to kind of get into how this applies to the NFL itself, because obviously the NFL is also a business, but is both a business and a brand. But the relationship between business and brand here is like, it is standard that the actual business practices that a company engages in, and for that matter, the political preferences of its owners are not necessarily the things that the company is presenting to the world, right? Like the idea of marketing and branding and brand values is extremely well accepted in the business context. That is only beginning to become the case in the political context. Essentially, Nike and Donald Trump are running the same game here, right? They are making the assumption that The people who they are marketing to care less about the substance of what the machine behind them is doing than they care about declaring their, you know, solidarity with one side or the other. They're both telling stories in which the people they're talking to are underdogs, right? Right. They're either underdogs because they actually care about the troops and care about the flag in a globalist world that, like, doesn't care about traditional American values, or they're underdogs because they're standing up for the man very poorly defined in a Nike ad. And, you know, kind of getting back to what I was saying to Matt last week about everyone's the victim of their own story, both of those are very appealing narratives. But in both cases, it's an assumption that the team that you align yourself with is kind of aligning yourself with an existing brand that is also a machine that is doing real things in the world is going to be the most important way to do that. And that, I think, is where, you know, where we get into some of the discomfort that people feel with 21st century politics as branding is that, like, you're not actually voting for Colin Kaepernick in chief, right? Like, you know, you're voting for a party that is going to do real things. And how valid that is when applied to the business context, where traditionally it's been assumed that you don't necessarily care a ton about what the company is doing, is I think it's not super comfortable on that side either to say it's totally kosher not to look into what a business is doing, which I think is what brings us to the NFL. But before that, a break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. So the Nike boycott 
isn't working. Nope. Stipulated. Yep. The question, I think, is what is going on with the NFL and what do NFL owners think is going on with the NFL? So the NFL is a fascinating, extremely powerful entity that occasionally seems to just, like, wander into traffic. (laughs) And by that, I mean that the NFL has become this country's most powerful sports league, hands down. Like, people watch – NFL football, talk about NFL football, participate in fantasy football, participate in like, you know, when I I was trying to explain to someone about how big the NFL is in America, that like you can, during the Super Bowl, you can bet actual money on how long the Star Spangled Banner will take. And people will bet millions of dollars on just that. But it's complicated because the NFL is dealing with a lot of different things all at once. And the debate about people protesting racial inequality during the national anthem, that was a debate it did not particularly need. So there are a couple things. First, very quickly, the NFL had on-the-field issues. One, a lot of their big market players got hurt. Um, I'm thinking Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers got hurt. You saw a couple, you know, a lot of other big figures within the NFL get hurt. That means that offenses are sorry. A fun asterisk. A lot of starting quarterbacks got hurt, which meant there was a scramble around the middle of the season to like find quarterbacks who yes. hadn't been signed elsewhere. Which is why Colin Kaepernick might have a point when he says that there was a deliberate effort to not hire him. Exactly. You know, when you look past Colin Kaepernick, who has been to a Super Bowl and you think, I should get Nathan Peterman. Well, you're telling on yourself. But we're going to find out that Nathan Peterman is a listener of the weeds and we're all going to be super embarrassed. Hello, Nathan Peterman. But I think that that was an on the field issue because if you tune into a game at 1 p.m. on a Sunday, you're not only tuning into the game, you're tuning into the advertisements for the game unless you watch NFL Red Zone, which means you had to pay money to the NFL and a bunch of other entities to see just touchdowns delivered directly to your cerebral cortex, the finest invention of all time. And if you're watching a game and no one can play quarterback and the offenses are stagnant, you're going to stop watching the game because it's boring. You know, people do not, in general, want to watch a 13-10 final score game. People will say they do because people are like, I love defense. No, you don't. You want to see touchdowns. But the other interesting question here is that it is possible that the other kind of thing that football has to offer, especially on defense, is the spectacle of very large men hitting each other very hard. And that leads to our second problem and the (laughs) overarching overarching problem that the NFL is most concerned about, and that is the issue of concussions and CTE, which has been now diagnosed in players who have passed away who were very young. You have, you know, legendary players like the late Junior Seau who killed himself and after his brain was examined was found to have CTE. And you have some players, people who would you would recognize their names saying, you know, I wish I would have played baseball. You know, if I could go back, I would not have played football. You have players saying, I would not let my children play football. And these are people who played in high school, then played in college, then played in the NFL for 10 years. And when they're saying, I absolutely would not let my children do this. And the issue is there are a bunch of issues here. And the NFL has been poorly prepared to deal with any of them. One, it has not done a great job of helping players after they leave the league because a lot of times um, some of the symptomology of CTE 
you hear about players who are now like homeless. You hear about players who are having severe physical and mental and psychological issues that after they pass away, or you, you see like, oh, they had signs of CTE. And then again, which is probably even more terrifying for the NFL, you know, you see college players. Um, there was a Washington State quarterback who uh, regrettably committed suicide a couple of years ago, and his parents had his brain examined and he had early stages of CTE. And so the very game itself is at risk. And that, you know, for the NFL, which has obviously made billions of dollars off this sport, that's very worrying. And not to mention the fact that in an effort to attempt to figure out what to do about this, because there are a lot of people like, okay, if we change how people tackle. Now, keep in mind, you're telling people who have been playing this sport for at least 20 years, like, okay, remember how you've been doing it this whole time? You have to stop doing it this way or we're going to penalize you. And so you saw in the preseason this year, like they've been trying to figure out, oh, we're going to try and limit leading with the helmet and a bunch of other things. And the players are like, this isn't going to work. Stop it. And so I think that between not being able to take care of players after they retire, and not to mention the NFL has tried to challenge the existence of CTE in the first place, and the fact that you have players coming into the league who might already be starting to develop these brain issues, and when the NFL does try to orchestrate rule changes to deal with this, they don't work. And, you know, the NFL has had a long history of changing the rules to benefit some players and then leaving other players out of it. If listeners, you know, have followed the NFL for any length of time, there's been a lot of effort to protect quarterbacks because the NFL recognizes that quarterbacks are among the most visible players to not just viewers, but sponsors. Tom Brady is very important to the NFL. Ben Roethlisberger is very important to the NFL. When you have a quarterback, Matthew Stafford of the Detroit Lions or Aaron Rodgers, who each have contracts that are worth in hundreds of millions, if they get hurt, that's very, very bad. And so you have rules now that basically, you know, if you hit a quarterback and like above the knees practically, you will get penalized for that. But then if you're a running back, no one cares. And running backs have the most sustained damage. And that, you know, that's a problem. And so put it all in a short form, the NFL has a bunch of problems and it has not been sure how to deal with any of them. And I think that that also does get us to the NFL owners issue. The NFL owners are not a particularly diverse group. Right. They tend to be elderly white men, and they tend to have obtained their NFL teams. You know, there wasn't some sort of like, ah, yes, we like all gathered together and decided that they would be very good if this person owned this NFL team. A lot of times, you know, they're not the, like scrappy startups. No, no. Stephen Stephen M. Ross is not a scrappy startup. You know, the ten richest owners of the NFL are worth a combined sixty-one billion dollars. <laughs> and also, something else that's important is that unlike other sports leagues, unlike Major League Baseball, the NFL Players Association does not have the same kind of bargaining power that other leagues enjoy. That other players in other leagues right. enjoy. So, for instance, um, free agency works differently. This it, is this is a bugaboo that everyone who is not a football fan should should know about. You do not have guaranteed contracts in the right. NFL, which going back to the injury thing means that there is a very strong incentive for players to play hurt yep. because if they're on an official like injured reserve list or they're not on the roster for that they week, they're cut. not getting their game check. Yep. And, you know, you could say this happened to Donovan McNabb, a retired player. Um, you know, you could sign a deal for 
a 10-year deal. It it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so, you know, you saw NFL owners like Houston Texans owner Bob McNair comparing protesting players to inmates running the prison. And because there's an idea, you know, there's a very clear idea that a lot of NFL owners have. And I I will note that there have been a couple of owners, uh, owner of the New York Jets and others who have said that, you know, if hypothetically the NFL started um, fining players who protest, he would, you know, he would pay the fines. But in general, there is an idea that. You know, one, NFL owners are beholden not to the players at all, but they are beholden to the fans who have probably, one, with taxpayer money, paid for the stadiums in which they live. And, you know, they want to be able to watch the game on television. They want to be able to go to the games. And they, to the NFL owners, are far more important than the players are, which is why a lot of players have kind of described the relationship as feeling kind of like they are owned by the NFL. But also, I mean, you touch on this, but it's a it's a totally different labor relations model yes. than like in basketball, oh, right? Yeah. So an NFL team has many more players than an yeah. NBA roster. NFL careers tend to be much shorter, right? The union is weaker. And the exception to this, right, the players who have long careers and who do have like star power and clout vis-a-vis the owners are the quarterbacks, but the quarterbacks are mostly white while the rest of the players are mostly black. So the owners have a relationship to the African-American workforce that even though, I mean, the players are well compensated compared to an average job, but it's much more akin to a typical employer-employee relationship in which the workforce is largely disposable. Yeah. You drop the players when you do, whereas like in the NBA, like virtually every player is like a beautiful, unique snowflake. Oh, yeah. A multi-year guaranteed deal who – you know, the owner still owns the team. He's the yeah. boss in some sense. But, like, there's a reason why LeBron James and all those guys are much more vocal about – I mean, about political issues, but really just about, like, everything in life. Because, like, the stars sort of run the show. Exactly. And the owners are happy to make money off of it. Right. And, like, when you do have football players who uh, – there is a certain tall poppy problem or, like, when you do have football players who are willing to speak their minds. Like, yeah. Jalen Ramsey, my – current favorite player uh, who's a defender for the Jacksonville Jaguars who just yeah. like, you know, w- did a GQ interview just popping his mouth off about half the league yeah. and got an ex-coach, Tony Dungy, to be like, oh, he should be more respectful. He should play the game better. Like there's a respectability politics thing going on there that's also about labor relations oh, because exactly. it's so rare for a player, especially a non-quarterback, especially a black non-quarterback to be able to like speak their mind in that way. But- and you see that even taking place right now because you're seeing players, individual players, saying, okay, you know, I want to play this game. I want to get the money I am due for this game. So you have players, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers running back Le'Veon Bell right now is holding out on his contract, though he could have been announced while we're doing this that he has done something. I don't think so. And you see his fellow players, especially his offensive linemen, which if you're a running back are the most important people in your life, basically saying like, why would you give up on us? This isn't how you play as a team. Because in the NBA, and it's interesting because there's been a lot of good writing on why the NBA is has been way better at dealing with social issues. I mean, part of that is because Adam Silver is an excellent league manager, but also because of that, you know, it's a smaller team. These players are more recognizable. And the owners, you know, I, if you can name more than three NBA owners, I'll be extremely impressed. You know, it's basically like Mark Cuban and some other people. But... Ted Leonsis. Oh, nice, nicely done, man. Owner of Wizards Band, dude. <laughs> the Dolans in New York. <laughs> well, 
Dolan's known because he's terrible. But I think that there very much is a sense in the NFL that NFL players and NBA players know each other. They recognize, you know, LeBron James knows these people. They have conversations. And NFL players recognize they're not stupid. They recognize that they have a very short lifespan. They recognize that they are in a system where the best thing for them to do is to try and make as much money as right now, as they can right now. And the NFL has an ownership model that very much does not want that to happen. And it's interesting because... Somehow the NFL has been able to impart that same message to fans. In the NBA, you have people who are, you know, people were mad about LeBron going to Miami through the decision, but that was mostly because the decision was kind of poorly done. But when LeBron announced that he was going to go to the Lakers, people were like, oh, you yeah, know, that makes sense. Like, it's a logical thing to do. He has homes there. They're going to give him a ton of money. You know, go forth, young man, and do your thing. With the NFL, when you hear about players, you know, holding out on contracts or looking around or something like that, fans just suddenly are like, how dare they do this to my proud, proud team that expanded 45 seconds ago? You know, like, ah, the long storied tenure of team that was established in 2005. Like, it's a it's a very different idea of what these what players mean to fans. I want to go back to the race thing because it's not that everybody on a football team who's not the quarterback is black, but really what there is a lot there is a certain amount of class segregation that like there are a lot of small towns in Texas where football is the way you're going to get out. There are a lot of like rural areas in the South where a lot of, you know, young black men like that is their ticket out of there. And so what that means is that they're doing several years of dangerous, uncompensated labor. When you think about what Jane was talking about, about the CTE results in like former high school and college players, thinking about how high school and college, you literally cannot get paid or compensated in any way and you're subject to fines and penalties if you do. And then they're coming into the NFL where, yeah, they're compensated better than usual for like a worker if they pay, but they don't have guaranteed game checks. And then after they retire, there's not a really strong system for making sure that they continue to build their wealth. That's an extremely precarious workforce. The class segregation of it, though, and the kind of weird relationship that the fans have where they are cheering on players who are nothing like them and who they feel no solidarity with reminds me a lot of the relationship that a lot of Americans have with the troops, frankly. Like, we've run some pieces. We have a a good video from a few years ago about how socially segregated the military has become from the rest of America because only certain kinds of Americans go into the military. But they do that because the military, I mean— As America has gotten more engaged abroad in situations in the war on terror, it's not like a guaranteed safe gig anymore, but it does offer opportunities for, you know, career advancement if you don't have a college degree. It offers opportunities, you know, to go back to school when you're done with your tour. There's a certain amount of stability there that you don't have in the NFL. In the NFL, you're taking a gamble with your life and it's not like you have a good military pension and VA benefits on the other end of it. And so, you know, the kind of generational big problem that the NFL has isn't who's watching week to week or how people feel about the national anthem. It's the question of who's going to be playing football 20 years from now. Exactly. And it's interesting. You know, I'll make this my final point that Anquan Bolden, who has retired from the NFL, actually to focus on social justice issues, I've spoken with him and he talked about how, you know, he played football with the intent of getting out of Florida. Like he played at Florida State 
he played for the Ravens. And the intention of his tenure was to make it to the NFL so that he could support his family. And he's from an area of Florida called Pahokee, which some people will know pretty well is called Muck City. And part of the kind of lore of Muck City is it's very, very poor, but they produce a ton of NFL players. Part of that is part of something where they have people chase rabbits, and that's how they develop their speed and quickness. But also, former Michigan quarterback Denard Robinson, a lot of other Michigan players, a lot of other players throughout both college and the NFL are from this area, and it is extremely poor. Football is viewed as a way to get out of this. And so when you do have this strata, you know, you've got someone like Chris Long, who plays for the Eagles now, who went to UVA. His father is Howie Long, very famous NFL player. He grew up wealthy. That's not standard. You know, you do have some players who do come from like a background of some means, but a lot of players, the NFL is like, you know, getting there is just, that was the dream. And so I think that's a huge question for the NFL. Okay. So we're going to wrap this episode up here with a thanks to everybody who is listening. We are the number one sports commentary podcast out there. And And if you want more actual sports commentary, please follow our brethren over at SB Nation for both college and NFL football. Excellent stuff. So thanks to uh, Griffin Tanner, our engineer, Bridget Armstrong, our producer, and the Weeds will return on Tuesday. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.